0: welcome back to crime capsule i'm your host benjamin morris strange ritual objects a dismembered body found in an unusual position remote surroundings possibly associated with cult activity were you to hear any of these things about a recent murder surely they would catch your ear and like as not they would make it difficult to hear anything else about the case thereafter anything that might contradict these first notions. There's a principle in cognitive psychology that says we tend to latch on to the first thing we hear, not necessarily the most salient thing or the most accurate thing about a case. That once a concept gets stuck in our minds, it becomes very, very difficult to dislodge for months, for years, even for decades. This principle underlies the case of Jeanette De Palma, a teenage girl from New Jersey whose murder has captivated area residents for over 50 years. As you'll hear, early missteps in handling the case, including needless sensationalizing over stray details, jeopardized a quest for justice that has been underway since 1972. As we start a new series on cold cases for the cold winter months, joining us on Crime Capsule to tell us about Jeanette and the murder that rocked the Garden State is author Jesse Pollack who, along with Mark Moran, wrote Death on the Devil's Teeth, the strange murder that shocked suburban New Jersey. Unusual to note about this volume, and we'll get into why, is the fact that this book has recently been revised and updated and republished by the History Press in a new expanded edition just two years ago. That itself is a story which Jesse, I am so glad, is here to tell us today. Jesse, welcome to Crime Capsule. It is so great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to sit down and talk about this case with you. Yeah, and we have to say right up front that um, we were very sorry to learn that this morning your co-author, Mark Moran, who is going to join us, he was diagnosed with COVID today. And I'm just so sorry. I think we all here in Crime Capsule Land just want to send him a big old get well soon, you know, hope he feels better and gets back in the saddle as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, it finally got him. He, he lived through the whole pandemic for the last four years almost without, a, you know, catching the Rona, as they say. But, you know, time ran out. But he, he sounds like he's doing all right and I hope he feels better real soon.
0: All right. Well, thanks for holding down the fort with this particular uh, case here. Now, the two of you guys, we'll get to Jeanette in in a moment, but the two of you guys, you and Mark, you guys actually have kind of a fun origin story, which is uh, centered around this amazing magazine that is published out of your home state. Tell us about uh, weird new jersey and then tell us how you guys met
1: well uh Weird new jersey was started all the way back in the very early 90s i want to say 92 or 93 by mark's co-editor and weird new jersey founder mark Skirman. and it was literally just a typewritten newsletter that he would you know xerox and staple together in his home And give to friends just like, hey, here's like a a travel guide, essentially, of all the bizarre spots in the state, like everything from personalized property to ghost legends and true crime stories like the one we're going to discuss. And it just took off. And a couple issues into him doing this, he met up with Mark Moran um who was a a graphic designer and photographer and a a fan of skerman's newsletter and the two of them decided to join forces and turn again what was really like a zine in the like 80s like diy punk sense yeah into a full-fledged magazine and it just it really struck a nerve with people in weird new jersey and uh I was one of them uh, when I was about nine or ten years old. Um, my grandparents, they, uh, they had a trailer at a campsite up in upstate New York. And every summer we'd go up there for a couple weeks. And one morning uh, we stopped at a, a new stand to grab some coffee and some breakfast. And my grandmother saw an issue of Weird New Jersey on the stands. Nice. Four bucks like 100 pages of cool stuff. She's like, oh, Jesse will like this. And she grabbed it for me to read on the two-hour ride up to the campground. Yeah. And, oh, my God, it was just like, it opened up parts of my brain I didn't know existed. I was, you know, just floored by just how much rich lore and historical oddities were literally in my own backyard. So I, it was only a matter of time between uh, me just being a you know, casual new fan of the magazine and starting to submit um, letters and articles uh, myself. I believe the first one that I wrote that was published was all the way back in 2001. So I would have been 13. So I've been writing for Weird New Jersey since
0: I was a child. <laughs> you know, there there is almost no greater pleasure in uh, the book world or in the writing world than to go from – being an avid reader of a periodical or, you know, some kind of publication to actually being a partner with it, to being a contributor. It's like, it's one of these, you know, Mount Olympuses that, that, that when you climb, like you just feel like you're on top of the world.
1: (laughs) And that's the great thing about We're in New Jersey, because pretty much 80% of that publication is made up of reader submitted content. So, everyone really kind of feels this strange sense of joint ownership in it, I guess is the closest term I could come to. Uh, It it really builds a sense of community there, like, oh, hey, I had something published by Weird New Jersey, or check out this photo I sent in, or this artwork that I drew for this issue. It really is a a collective team effort led by Skirman and Moran,
0: who uh, we all affectionately know as the Marks. Now, what kind of background, apart from being interested in the strange, the bizarre, the you know, the uncanny, et cetera, et cetera, um, what kind of background were you bringing to this work of writing for Weird New Jersey?
1: At first, it wasn't anything groundbreaking. it, it was It was nowhere near on the level of what eventually became Death on the devil's teeth. It was, like, Strange stuff. Like I want to say, the first thing that I had published in the magazine back in 2001 was um, a story that my father had told me. My father grew up in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, in the the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Those of you who lived in Perth Amboy, if there are listeners out there from that general area, know that there was a me- a, a pretty large mental hospital. Um, in, in the, the general area. And back then, they would let the patients, I guess we could call them, yeah. uh, they <laughs> yeah. would let them out for like lunch and stuff. So like if you were a kid that like hung out on the streets or didn't have a car yet and walked everywhere, you would run into these very interesting characters. Most of them were nice. They didn't, caused too much trouble except for a few like that would you know boost a car and and drive it backwards down Amboy Avenue and stuff like that and there was a, a a character that someone else had written into Weird New Jersey about in a previous issue who they called I think it was they it was a weird name I think they called him Phoenicious or something but they said yeah there was this guy in Perth Amboy called Phoenicious, and he used to stand on the corner of an intersection and mime like he was bowling What? uh, No way. Yeah, and I showed it to my father. He goes, his name wasn't fucking Phoenicians. His name was Bowler Jim. I saw him every day. (laughs) And so that opened up him telling me about Bowler Jim and this other guy named crazy Larry and all this other stuff. So I kind of just wrote down everything he told me and organized it into this little letter and sent it in and the marks accepted it. So it nice. was like stuff like that, like kind of like urban legend, like uh, crazy characters. Um, there was a, an intersection in the town of Rawway where I grew up uh, Harrison street and St. George's Avenue. And on that intersection, it was the only street that didn't say George's Avenue. Avenue was George Avenue. So if you looked at it the right way, it looked like it said George Harrison Avenue. Ugh. So I, I wrote in about that, you know, just like kind of cool little weird things like that. But um, I was mostly interested in that magazine for the, the paranormal. Content because I was a big horror buff even as a kid. Like I, I would swipe my mom's old um, first edition Stephen Kings that she had laying around, and of course, Goosebumps was huge as a kid when I was growing up. So I, I was just a, a total ghost story addict when it came to We're New Jersey. But a, a few years later, this this whole true crime case kind of just landed in the lap of the editors over there, and it turned into this
0: strange saga that's still going on today. You know, it's it's funny that you should mention that, because just in the last few weeks, we've had Tom D'Agostino on as a guest on the show, and, you know, writing about the sort of paranormal New England. We had an extended spooky season, which ran after after Halloween rather than before, Well, you know, his, his book uh, dealt with a lot of the unexplained that sort of the things that you find on local roads, uh, you know, New England's Route 44, in particular. And, and it's interesting, Jesse, because your book is kind of like a perfect bridge between the, the spooky season of, of, you know, the several months past, and we're moving into a cold case season. And the Jeanette De Palma story has elements of, of both, actually. And it's, Really fascinating to see how you've how you've managed to sort of thread that needle, so to speak. Uh, I'm curious when, just right from the jump, when did you first hear about Jeanette De Palma?
1: I heard about it after the editors at the magazine did. There was a period of a couple of years in high school where I got caught a, a kind of caught up in other things, like I was in a band, and you know, uh, I had a car and a girlfriend so i was busy doing things that teenagers do in their cars with girlfriends etc and uh so i wasn't really like
0: the shooting fireworks or. obviously right
1: yeah well i mean that was later that was in college tossing fireworks out of the uh the car at two in the morning you know that was more dirt bag uh you know bottle kids time we've all been there <laughs> yeah you know you get bored you know especially right. living in uh, the college town of dover delaware it's just like hey it's wednesday night what do you do i don't know let's throw you know m80s Out of a moving vehicle That's safe It's pretty de uh, rigueur As far as things go Oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) As the French say It was very au courant But uh, Absolutely What uh, Basically happened Was I was getting ready To move From the east coast Out to the midwest Where I live today And I was packing All of my stuff up And I found my box Of all my old issues Of Weird New Jersey Now this was uh, Late 2011 And so I was trying to find an issue that I had a small little article in that came out in 2004. It was issue, I want to say 22. So I'm like trying to find it. I find it in the box and I'm just kind of, I find my article, uh, you know, real quick. I probably had the page number memorized or something because I was just so psyched every time something I wrote made it in. And flipping through this magazine, um... I came across this like seven page spread that Mark Moran had done and it was called who killed Jeanette De Palma and I'm flipping through it. And like you had uh, mentioned earlier, it was not only a true crime case, but it had elements of the supernatural and the occult. It it read like a, a real life twin peaks and I'm just reading it and saying to myself, how did you forget about this story? Like, I don't know, maybe in, let's see, in 2004, I would have been 16 or just about to turn 16. Maybe I just like was so focused on, oh my God, I got another article in the issue. I didn't care about anything else and just put it away. But uh, I'm reading it and going, I want to know more about this story. This story is insane. So I got a hold of Mark Moran and said, hey, um, have you guys heard anything else about this Jeanette De Palma case in the last seven years? And he said, uh, no, the, the letters and, and news about it kind of just trailed off over the years. And uh, I said, well, someone must have written a really good book about this by now. And I went on Amazon and Barnes & Noble to look, and sure enough, no one had. So, I was in this really weird position of, well, I would really like to read a book about this case. I guess I'm going to have to write it.
0: It's the oldest advice, you know? It's like if, if there's something that you haven't yet read that you want to read. It was so weird because it wasn't
1: like an issue of me having like all the confidence in the world as a researcher or a writer to go, oh, well, I'm going to unearth this cold case and write the definitive book on it. It was more like... Well, I saw that movie Zodiac and I read the book and if a cartoonist can become like the so-called authority on one of the world's most intriguing cold cases, you know, maybe my goofy self can put out a decent investigation on this and who knows, maybe if I put all of the information in one place, it'll shake something loose. And so early 2012, I started to put some serious work into it and um, to kind of circle back a little more, the the basics of the case are this: um, in August 1972, there was a 16 year old girl by the name of Jeanette Palma in Springfield Township, New Jersey, which is in Union County, where I grew up. Uh, Springfield is literally 20 minutes from my house, where I you know uh, lived throughout my childhood and you know, still visit from time to time because I still have friends and relatives in the area. So it was a very, like, you know, down-home case to me. It wasn't just, oh, this is New Jersey, this is cool. It's like, no, this is in my backyard, So, um, basically she vanished while hitchhiking on August 7th, 1972. She was on her way to go visit a friend in Berkeley Heights, never came home that night. Classic story that people have heard a million times, unfortunately, uh, whether they're consuming their true crime media through podcasts, books, or television specials, the family calls the police, the police go... Uh, she's probably a runaway. Uh, We can't do anything for 24 hours. Call us back tomorrow if she doesn't come home. So the investigation is immediately soiled just from that, from from law enforcement laziness. And uh, there was nothing for six weeks until, and this is a very, very gruesome part of the story. It was so gruesome that I almost didn't believe it was true when I started working on this. But essentially a dog brought her forearm home to its owner in an apartment building uh, only a few hundred yards away from where her body was eventually found
0: you know it's a funny thing jesse because you open your book you know kind of with that moment and it just felt very cinematic you know i mean the kind of thing that 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 you know sort of cold open and there's a dog (laughs) by a lakeside and it's running or you know and yeah you know the the old theories of narrative say that they're two basic stories right uh stranger Mm. comes to town or hero leaves home um you know in this particular case it's sort of like you know the dog bringing this this piece of her um you know her arm back I, i don't know if it's both of those theories of narrative at once (laughs) you know is it it's kind of like elements of, of of the two
1: well it definitely was a catalyst uh it exploded the case wide open because there was no one working it um and and this is kind of like the dirty little secret in springfield that a lot of people are very embarrassed about this was a child that was declared missing um after a forced delay by whoever took that phone call the night that she disappeared and by the cop's own admission i i mean this was said to me by more than one retired springfield police officer who i interviewed and quoted directly in the book they said we were not looking for her do you know how many kids used to like run away from home because they were pissed off at their parents and then come back a week later we put her name in a card put it in a file issued a be on the lookout the next day and that was it we were not pounding the pavement we were not knocking on doors looking for her This arm being brought back home to that apartment building forced everyone to basically go, uh, we've got a problem here. This is is no longer some kid ran off to the city to live with friends or she's staying with a girlfriend because her parents grounded her and she didn't want to deal with it. No, this is uh, either she died accidentally or a homicide. And that was very murky, even when they found the rest of her remains, because she was literally pretty much skeletonized when they found her. This was a very hot and humid New Jersey summer, and she had been laying out in the elements for six weeks and they found her. Um, inside this now there are many conflicting reports on this but the truth of the matter is it was an active worksite if you look up this case online you'll find you know websites and podcasts and YouTube videos done by people that have done very very little research or worse they have AI do their research for them and it, it, they all say oh she was found in a you know spooky abandoned rock quarry no it wasn't abandoned it was a worksite and that's important you know we'll touch on that later um but it was literally a cliff edge like if you go into this area of the Hudai Quarry on Shunpike Road in Springfield it literally goes up a very large hill you enter the woods on the right-hand side of the road and then there you you climb up another large knoll about 40 feet into the air and then at the cliff edge it's a straight vertical drop of almost 50 feet and right at the top of that knoll was where her body was found
0: now this matters too because you know there's some theories of- the case which suggests that you know if she was it's a few miles between where she had begun and then where she was headed and she did she was hitchhiking okay and 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 there's sort of one theory that says well maybe the you know the killer um you know killed her and then had to carry her body up that far and that changes kind of who you start to look at as far as potential suspects but one of your arguments is that anyone who makes that claim has Absolutely no knowledge of the local terrain. Like, just doesn't understand how the topography works in that area at all. It's just not possible.
1: And, and and that's why I have I have always been incredibly dubious of anything the police say about the circumstances, uh, in particular of this case, because there there there's a a clear divide in what former and current law enforcement say about the circumstances there. You will either have one faction who says, oh, no, she was partying with friends there and she dropped dead and her friends panicked and just left her there, which is ridiculous. Right. Uh, she she vanished on a Tuesday afternoon and her body was found in an active construction site. You are not going to party inside an active construction site at, you know, midnight or whenever she would have ended up in there. We know she wasn't killed immediately after uh, leaving home. Th- there were sightings of her in the neighborhood and general area that day, sightings that were have been more or less confirmed. And there is a possible sighting of her maybe even making it to Berkeley Heights. Um, There's really strong evidence for that, but nothing conclusive. Either way, we know she was most likely still alive when the sun went down that day. So the idea that she was going and partying there is absolutely ludicrous to me, especially when there are so many... Other options. Like I spoke to Jeanette's nephew, and Jeanette's nephew straight up said, if she wanted to party in the woods, there was a big patch of woods on the side of the house that my grandparents never went into. She could have gone away, gotten away with it there. You talk to other locals. I haven't found a single one of Jeanette's peers, of which I've interviewed nearly a hundred of them over the years. Not a single one of them has ever said, Oh yeah, we used to party in the woods bordering the quarry all the time. No, they partied in the Wachung Reservation or, or Echo Lake Park or something like that, or the comfort of their own homes and that leads into the second faction that law enforcement will say they will say oh well yeah she must have been partying at one of her friends house and and she died there and you know they they drove her to the quarry and and hoisted her her body her her dead limp dead weight body on their shoulder and dropped her on top of a hill it's ridiculous
0: suburban teens in in New Jersey in the 1970s are not acting like you know Sherpas climbing Mount Everest
1: yeah and and, and anyone who who's grown up in that area knows that if you want to get rid of a body There are other options in those woods itself. Forget about like, oh, you could just go dump it in the Wachung Reservation and no one will ever find it. But there was uh, if you wanted to dump a body and make sure that the evidence was washed away from it and that, you know, the aquatic wildlife would would take care of disposing a lot of it. There was a, a creek slash stream 40 50 feet away from the hill where she was found you could have just dumped the body in the water or you could have buried it there was no attempt made to conceal these remains so the idea that they and and also there is nowhere to really park your car for any ex, uh, extended period of time I talk about this in the book um, when I went there in 2014 to take photos for the the first edition of the book, um, we parked on that side of Shunpike Road. Um, There's no lot or anything you literally pull onto a shoulder, most of which is grass. And we were in there for a matter of an hour or two, and 13 uniformed Union County police officers showed up with guns drawn and had us come down from the hill and... Thank God they had good eyesight because I was holding a folded up uh, camera tripod in my hand at the time. And I thank God every day they didn't think it was a long gun. You're going to get noticed like a neighbor called the police right away when we were there taking pictures. Someone would have noticed a car is parked there and a bunch of kids are getting out and dragging a body in there. And. If you notice in those two scenarios we just discussed that have been put forth by the police and the police only, the residents do not believe these stories and never have. It's always the police. Oh, she must have dropped dead there doing drugs or she dropped dead at someone's house. It's always her fault as far as the Springfield police and the Union County Prosecutor's Office are concerned, because in my opinion, they don't want to deal with the murder. It's a lot of work. It's work that they already lost a ton of time on because they did not take it seriously the night she went missing, and they lost another six weeks in between her disappearing and her body being found. So it was just a lot easier to go, eh, she's probably some hippie, she probably OD'd on something and died. Then then it doesn't raise the murder stats in the town. It doesn't cause a panic, especially among the upper crust uh, element in Springfield and Mountainside, which were very prevalent then and still are today. And uh, it just it's it's just better for the powers that be. And I know that sounds really conspiratorial to some of our listeners who may not be familiar with this case or have read Mark's in my book. But there there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that arose out of that that really points towards uh, what i'm putting out there essentially
0: no for sure and i think it's important to take those perspectives into account you know we we so often uh, rush to judgment in so many ways and you know we believe we believe the first thing we hear not the most credible thing that we hear and in this particular case that tendency Corrupted the investigation from the very beginning. And, you know, the thing that everybody knows about Jeanette De Palma is, oh, her body was found in some kind of strange arrangement with all these different, you know, mm-hmm. sort of objects and there's a layout. And it, it you know, ties, as you would detail extensively in the book, ties directly into those cultural fears, the satanic panic, the kind of, uh, you know, let us all immediately assume the absolute worst rather than looking at just the evidence, you know, and I, th- I thought it was so interesting, Jesse, that you takes you took such care to point out the multiple different versions uh, of how her body was actually found, and that from the get-go you had competing accounts, right? That's not supposed yeah. to happen in forensic analysis. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, there's how you find it, and you document it that way. You shouldn't end up with three different contradictory accounts, right, from the from the beginning.
1: Well, it was because, again, law, for- law enforcement wanted this to go away. Uh, it was the press that kind of—and it's a weird thing, too, because it wasn't, oh, from the jump, people were saying, like, oh, yeah, no, she was surrounded by bizarre objects or she was on a quote-unquote altar. It was missing girl's body found dead in the woods after six weeks— Uh, You know, she's almost skeletal. The autopsy didn't conclude anything. Wow, what a tragedy. And it was quiet for another, I want to say, 11 days. And then all of a sudden, there is this burst of newspaper headlines. All over the tri-state area. We're not just talking about the the local papers like the Star-Ledger or the Home News Tribune or the Springfield Leader or anything like that. It was all the way to the New York Daily News, the New York Post. I think the Times even had a small little piece on it. But all of a sudden it was, you know— uh, You know, newsflash, the Springfield police are investigating the possibility of, quote, black magic and witchcraft in the death of Jeanette De Palma. And it was all of this kind of cloak and dagger shit. Like, oh, we have an unnamed source who says that she was found in a, uh, a strange arrangement of sticks and stones in the quarry. And other people say, oh, no, it was an altar. And then, like the further people would dig into that, including up to Mark Moran, when he first started looking into it in 2002, um, you would get stories from locals saying like, oh yeah, no, I heard that there were like animal sacrifices all around her. There were like rabbits hanging by their necks from the trees and rodents in jars, weird shit like that, that (laughs) was obviously nonsensical. And I didn't take too much stock into it, but, um, It was interesting, like you said, in, like, the social phenomenon. This was, you know, right around the time of, like, you know, The Exorcist. uh, I'm not sure if the book was out yet. The movie definitely wasn't yet. But, like, you know, The Rosemary's Baby, Exorcist, kind of years, the proto-Satanic Panic. Uh,
0: I mean, this was only three years after Manson. What was it like for you guys to do all of that legwork yourself? Well, the
1: legwork was the most important part because we were not dealing with a case that other historians in any genre, let alone true crime, would have had the benefits of. Like if you're writing a book about, say, George Washington, you know, say you're Doris Kearns Goodwin or something like that, you have mountains of archival work to work with, Um, not just... The um the first data points of entry with, uh you know, surviving documents and all of that stuff. You have other books you can draw on the research of others that you can, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants. If it were, we were going in cold. There was no previous book written about this case. This was the early years of newspaper archives being uploaded to the Internet and I mean, there was maybe a dozen articles archived on there. It got to the point where there was such a um, drought of information online available about this when we were writing the book that we were going to libraries with a sack of quarters in our hands to go use the microfilm machine. I learned how to use microfilm working on this book. I mean, it felt pretty cool. I felt like, yeah, this is like something you would see in a, a, a movie about a dogged journalist going through the archive. So, but <sighs> you had to do that. You had to do the legwork because we did not have a case file to work with because Now, we're kind of backtracking here a little bit, so I won't stray too far from the farm. But back when Moran started working on this in the early 2000s, it was not long before the Springfield police called him and said, hey, uh, we understand that you guys have been writing about this story. Um, We want all of the files and information you guys have. And... He basically said, well, you guys are the cops. You you have everything right. And they said, well, no. He's like, what do you mean no? And they said, well, you know, we lost everything in a flood during uh, Hurricane Floyd in 1999. The evidence room uh, flooded and the case files destroyed along with some of the evidence. So that was what they told us. The, no, No case file exists. We were kind of skeptical about that for very good reasons that we can get into later. But... As far as the official stance, there's no case file. It's not even we have a case file and we'll, we're will we not going to let you see it. It was no, it's gone. It does not exist on this earthly plane anymore. So Mark and I essentially took the stance of we have to build a new case file. We're no longer journalists at this point. I'm not going to you know, sound full of ourselves here and say, you know, we're kind of like cops, but we had to essentially do police work on this. So it was, we have to gather all of the existing archival information, which again was just newspaper clippings and go and re-interview everyone who was still alive and willing to talk. And you kind of touched on that too. Um, We did find plenty of people who were still alive A significant portion said, no, I'm not talking about this. This is too dangerous, which, of course, only made us want to look into it further. But there was the other subset that were like, well, I'll talk to you, but please do not use my name. And then the remainders were people that were very helpful and for whatever reason, weren't too freaked out by this whole spookiness of it and uh, said, yeah, you can use my name. But. We, we literally had to, you know, do what a cop or, or a journalist as the story breaks would do. It's, you know, get out there. We, we did not have Wikipedia to rely on. We, Mark and I created the Wikipedia page for Jeanette. Like, there was nothing about her online other than the weird New Jersey coverage. And that all came about in a weird way, too, because it wasn't until 97 that someone wrote into the magazine about this. So the magazine had been going for about five years by this point. And it wasn't even like, oh yeah, when are you guys going to talk about Jeanette De Palma?" Like, here's all this information, like do something with it. It was literally a one paragraph letter that um, a reader by the name of Billy Martin wrote in. And he was responding to a previous issue that had talked about the Watchung Reservation. And all the letter said was, Yeah, really good article on the Wachung Reservation, but you guys only scratched the surface. I remember in the 70s, there was a ritual murder where uh, a dog brought a body part home and they found the rest of uh, the body in the woods. So there wasn't even a name. There was no location, just woods in the general area of the Wachung Reservation and 1970s. Now, this is 97. There's no Google yet. Yeah. There's no Wikipedia. There's no online newspaper archives. So they didn't really have anything to go on for a little bit. And finally, they just decided, well, let's just print Billy's letter and see if we get any responses to it. And they did. There was another reader who wrote in and said, I remember that story. Her name was Jeanette De Palma, and she was found on an altar. So that kind of kicked everything off where it took from 97, 98-ish, until 2002 when Mark wrote his first one or two page spread, um, which led to the larger seven page spread in 2004. So it's just been, it's like the snowball effect. It just kept building and building and building. And that was, again, a major motivation for me wanting to do it in book form because, well, look what a collective nine pages of magazine coverage generated. Imagine if we re-interview all these people and put out a book. What will shake loose from
0: there? You know, Jesse, there are multiple definitions of a cliffhanger, and I think you've just added one more to the list, and we're going to leave this week right there on that cliffhanger. What indeed would shake loose if you put all this out into a book and we're going to find out next week when we come back. So thank you so much for joining us and taking this through this truly bizarre case that has more twists and turns than the New Jersey Turnpike. So thank you. Thank
1: you. It's been as much of a pleasure talking about a, a horrific and tragic murder as it can be, but it's, it's, it's always good to keep this information out there because as you mentioned earlier, as far as the official record is concerned, this story is still an open-ended story. It's technically an unsolved case. Justice as delayed is as justice denied, as they say. So thanks for having me on to
0: talk about it. You got it. We'll see you right back here next week. See you then. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been... Jesse Pollack, co-author along with Mark Moran of Death on the Devil's Teeth, a Strange Murder that Shocked Suburban New Jersey, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Jesse. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com.
1: A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends, trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the
0: process. 3AM,
1: the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of
0: heart. Let's go.